you will join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 8. The title of our sermon this morning is Persistent Prayer. And our key words are prayer, justice, and faith. Now in this morning's text we are going to be looking at what I consider to be the probably the most difficult of all of the means of grace that God has given to us, and that is prayer. And we've addressed prayer a few times already in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, uh, Luke highlights prayer more than any of the other Gospel writers, than any of the other three Gospels. Luke really emphasizes prayer many times. Uh, the last few days I've asked several of you what kinds of spiritual goals you've set for yourself in the year 2014. And as I always expect when asking a question like that, many of you have said you intend to uh, pay special attention to your prayer life. And prayer is an important focus. And it's an important thing for all of us to be constantly mindful of. And it's probably something that all of us can improve in as Christians, even even the most prayerful saints of God throughout history have remarked time and again how they wish that they would have more of their lives dedicated to prayer before the Lord. I'm humbled when I read things like that because I sometimes look at the the prayer lives of, of some of the most mighty men of God throughout history and I'm in absolute awe when I consider that they've committed themselves to so much prayer and compare that to what I've been able to squeak out through the years that I've lived as a Christian. And so we recognize from God's word and from God's people how vital prayer is to a healthy Christian life. So Jesus is going to teach us this morning using a parable. But first we need to recall the context of what he's saying. If you remember from last week, Jesus is in the middle of a discussion about the kingdom of God. He was answering a question of the Pharisees. He also was speaking to his disciples. Remember the Pharisees that asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And they were looking for a physical, political kingdom in which Israel would dominate their adversaries, primarily the Romans. And the Israelites would become the ruling nation of the world. But Jesus destroyed these false notions of what the kingdom is. It wasn't and it isn't what they so desperately wanted. Rather, he instructed them that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It has arrived in Jesus, but it will not be fully consummated until his second coming. So as we saw last week, the coming of Jesus was the inauguration of the kingdom. And we wait until Jesus' second coming for the consummation of his kingdom. In other words, we live in the time that theologians have called the already and the not yet. The kingdom has already come, but it is not yet fully consummated. And so the big question is, how do we live in this time period? How do we live in this time between when Christ has come and yet we await his return? Because the Bible has taught us that we truly are, as Christians, we are members of two societies. We are living in the kingdom of man, and yet we are citizens of the kingdom of God. So, the big question is, what should that look like in our lives? 
I have rights and responsibilities as a citizen of the kingdom of man. And yet what goes on in this kingdom often opposes that which I'm called to as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So how do I work that out? How do I live productive uh, as a citizen, a faithful life in God's kingdom while I'm dwelling in the kingdom of man? So in a sense, we can say that all of the imperatives that God gives to us, the commands we've been given from God, are our instruction in that regard. However, sometimes that's not the easiest question to answer because the kingdom of man isn't always the same as what we see in Scripture. Depending on where we live, cultures change, governments transition, the application of God's word is not always as easy as a simple one-for-one correlation. So that's our context. We're in the midst of this discussion about the kingdom of God and how we live as a people in this kingdom. And so we see Jesus' focus now shift to the disciples who present him, uh, who, who are present with him when he discusses what it is to be a citizen within the kingdom. So let's begin in Luke 18 and verse 1. And Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Luke gives us the crux of the parable right out of the gate. Always pray and don't lose heart. In other words, be persistent in prayer. Jesus is telling his disciples, until I return and the kingdom is consummated, continue praying. And we could easily spend the remainder of our time right here thinking also of the Apostle Paul's exhortation to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. So Jesus' parable is going to explain this idea a bit more for us. However, before we push on to look at the parable... I want for us to think about this important command. As with most biblical commands, it can be easily misconstrued. In fact, it is because of this very concept of persistent or or constant prayer that many of the monastic movements of particularly the medieval age um, gave themselves over to complete isolation and repetitious mantras. And they called it prayer. They... They were of no use to anybody whatsoever. Uh, They were very good at saying the same things over and over and over again in a cave by themselves in the middle of nowhere. And such nonsensical application, it really keeps you from applying the rest of God's word. Uh, It doesn't allow many opportunities to apply what God has said. Things like loving one's neighbor. Well, to do that implies that you, you know, have neighbors. So the question remains, though, what does Jesus mean? If it's not this, if it's not that we spend our day in just a constant state of mantra-like prayer, what what is it like to be committed to persistent prayer in the Christian life? Do we need to memorize some prayers? Do we need to repeat them like the mystics, counting them out on prayer beads or ropes or rosaries? Or is it something else altogether? Uh, We can say what is meant in the Bible is that prayer is to be at the constant ready in our hearts and in our minds. 
In other words, that we find ourselves before the Lord consistently throughout our day. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul gives the command that we are to be devoted to prayer. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that we don't do anything other than pray. Just the same as if we're to say a man is devoted to his wife and children. Well, that doesn't mean he only spends his time with his wife and his children. So we can say being persistent in prayer, being devoted to prayer, or praying without ceasing, we put them all together, it is a way of life in which we have our hearts and our minds attuned to making regular pleas before the Lord throughout the day regarding the various circumstances we and others face so that we are reminded of our constant need for God and our reliance upon His grace and His provision. So that means that sometimes our prayers are going to be sustained times where we sit and pray. Maybe we have a prayer list we work through or we're praying through certain scriptures. Other times, our prayers are going to be very unstructured. I'll just move through the various groanings of my heart before the Lord as they come to me. It means that I will pray with other people to include my family and and our church and, and those we encounter throughout the day. But it also means that I'll pray privately, sometimes out loud, other times silently in my heart. We should have short prayers. Lord, help me to be wise right now in this circumstance. We should also have times of lengthy prayer. where We lay our hearts before the Lord. We should have spontaneous prayer that comes up throughout the day. But we should also have scheduled prayer times each day in our private and family worship. So all of these things could be said to be consisted of in a life devoted to prayer, persistent prayer. So... You might hear all that and say, well, I have a job. I have daily business to attend to. I have diapers to change, groceries to buy. You're telling me not to be a mystic, but the Lord is saying I need to be persistent in prayer. So how do those things get worked out in proper balance? This is the way in which we live our daily lives in which all of the activities of our lives can be made a part of praise and prayer for us. So, for example, we pray to God saying what Jesus taught us, give me today my daily bread. Ask God for the things that you need. That's the principle Jesus was teaching us. So we pray, give me today my daily bread, and we go off to work. And here's what's at the heart of the matter. As you work, as you labor, when you do so with a spirit of godliness, a desire to honor and glorify God, you are actively working out what you have prayed before God in your work by your lawful and necessary labors. You're, by working hard, you are praising God. For the very thing that he has promised, that he has given you a means by which to receive that which you have prayed for. And so in your labors, you are praising God for his mercies, for his provision. And you exhibit the grace that God has provided, which reflects honor upon his name. And so in that sense, you're giving prayers of praise to God. 
Charles Spurgeon, in preaching on this passage, said, Men ought always to pray, and that means that when they are using the lapstone or the chisel, when the hands are on the plow handles or on the spade, when they are measuring out goods, when they are dealing in stocks, whatever they are doing, they are to turn all these things into a part of the sacred pursuit of God's glory. Their common garments are to be vestments. Their meals are to be sacraments. Their ordinary actions are to be sacrifices. And they themselves, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, zealous for good works. So hopefully you're beginning to get an idea that when we say being persistent in prayer, we're not being instructed to lock ourselves in a closet and give ourselves to nothing but... We have lives to be lived. We have callings to fulfill as Christians in this world. So that can be done prayerfully in the way in which we go about those lives, in the way in which we fulfill our calling. That doesn't negate the necessity of actual time and effort in focused, intentional prayer, but that's not all that it is. So let's see how Jesus is focus here in this parable is going to help us understand persistent prayer. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary." So Jesus introduces us here to two individuals in his parable, a judge and a widow. First, in verse 2, we meet the judge, a man who Jesus says neither feared God nor respected man. Now, judges in Jesus' day were functioning very much like they do in ours. They were designated interpreters of the law within the society. They were... Arbiters that worked to ensure that the law was being properly applied and administered within the community. In Deuteronomy 16, the Lord gave special instructions to Israel about the role of the judges. And in his instruction, hear this when I read it, you'll hear how the the judge in Jesus' parable is exactly the opposite of what God has intended. Deuteronomy 16, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. You know, like it or not, judges have a whole lot of power. And if a judge is judging unrighteously and receiving bribes and abusing their authority, there is no justice. Sadly, throughout Israel's history and even our history as a nation, it is not uncommon to find dishonest judges. The Old Testament talks about uh, dishonest judges Ruling throughout the land. We see that many times through the Bible. So it's nothing new to us. So Jesus sets up this story to show us that the very thing that God requires of a judge is not present in this man. 
In fact, there's an ironic undertone here that the man who is to uphold and apply the law is the man who is said to be a breaker of it. In other words, if we summarize the two tables of God's law, the Ten Commandments, we know that the first four commandments have to do with loving God and the final six are having to do with loving our neighbor. Well, what does Jesus say of the judge? He neither feared God, he didn't love God, nor respected man, his neighbor. So he took all of God's law and had nothing to do with it. He was in complete opposition to God's law. Now, the whole purpose of having judges was, in God's own words, that the people would be judged with righteous judgment. They were to care for people, and they were to protect the people of the community from injustice. But if a judge doesn't respect his fellow man, he certainly isn't concerned with partiality and justice for the people. He is a law unto himself. The only person he cares about is himself. So Jesus presents us with a judge who is the exact opposite of what he should be. And then we see, walking into his courtroom, our second character, a widow. Now, even a cursory read through the Bible will instruct us that God is concerned for the welfare of widows, particularly in ancient society, which were established as patriarchies. Women needed to be joined to men in marriage so that they were protected and they were provided for. They didn't own land. They didn't, they didn't own anything. They needed someone to provide for them. And one of the major themes that stands out, even in the Gospel of Luke, is God's concern for the weak and disadvantaged, those who are oppressed and those who are helpless. And so it's fitting that Luke includes a parable in his Gospel of, uh, of this widow. When God handed down his law to the Israelites, he included the command to not take advantage of the widow or an orphan. In Deuteronomy 10, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. And the Apostle James writes in 127, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You see, God takes great interest in the weaknesses of widows in our society. And he gave many different commands regarding their protection and their well-being. So if a woman was of marriage age and became a widow, it was important for her to, to have a new husband, lest she be left unprovided for. Do you recall the opening chapter of the book of Ruth? The newly widowed Naomi returned from Moab to Bethlehem. And she told her friends, they were coming and they were greeting her. But she told all of them, don't call me Naomi. Well, the name Naomi means pleasant. She said, don't call me that. Call me Mara. Well, Mara means bitter. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Well, what is that all about? 
You see, widows were among the most defenseless in Hebrew society. The Old Testament refers to their being oppressed and taken advantage of. They were often uh, legal victims, and uh, what we see with the widow in our parable this morning is just that. She was a victim of a lack of justice. So what is her legal issue? Well, we don't know exactly, but it's very likely that she was one of the widows that we are going to read about in Luke chapter 20. She may have been the victim of men who devour widows' houses. There were evil men who would steal land and even entire households from widows because they knew there would be no consequences. The widows were defenseless. Judges could easily be paid off. And so people would come and they would take away from widows. They would pay off the judges. There would be no justice. And widows would be helpless and defenseless. So in this parable, what we have is a defenseless widow and an unjust judge. Had she the funds to do so, she could have possibly paid a bribe to the judge, but it's not likely that she would have had the ability to do so. And even if she did, but was a righteous woman, she would have obeyed God instead. So her only option was to do exactly what she did. Plea her case repeatedly until it would be heard. Jesus says she kept coming to the judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. She appealed to the judge to restore to her what was rightfully hers. Every day she begged him to help her. The language leaves open the possibility of her following the judge around wherever he went. Not just in court. Perhaps she pleaded with him in front of his colleagues. She confronted him when she saw him on the street. She pestered him in the marketplace. She called out to him at his home. She knew very quickly in dealing with this judge that justice was a slim chance. However, she persisted in the only thing that she knew to do with this godless, hardened, unjust, and cynical man. So what happens? Let's read beginning in verse 4. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, if this judge was a just man, he would have heard the widow's case immediately and recognized her helpless state and given her justice. But this judge wasn't just. And Jesus tells us in verse 4, for a while he refused. He wouldn't even hear the woman's case. Can you imagine the frustration, the righteous anger that would come from the widow as a result? And so we get the impression that day and night she is pleading her cause, any opportunity she has, and yet there is no justice. The judge had no reason to hear her cries. He could simply ignore her. But she had something working in her favor. And this is at the heart of what Jesus is pointing out in the parable. Persistence. 
In the face of what seemed to be impossible odds, the widow continues to cry for justice. And even though he refuses for a while, her persistence begins to pay off. Now notice the second part of verse 4. This judge is a man who is so utterly depraved that even he confesses what kind of man he is. There's no remorse in his statement. Rather, he simply points out the fact, I neither fear God nor respect man. Now again, we should see the irony. An utterly dishonest judge in every sense of the word makes a completely honest assessment about his own heart. And friends, there are some of you here this morning that would do well to make this same assessment of your own heart because you neither fear God nor respect man. Of course, we all want to have in our minds some idea that we assume to be moral or virtuous, thinking ourselves to be good people, but that's self-deception. It is self-deception. The Bible very clearly declares none is righteous. No, not one. And yet, God's standard is perfect righteousness. Unless we justly receive everlasting condemnation as the penalty for our sin. We need righteousness. But it's not something we ourselves are able to provide. We need the righteousness of Christ applied to our account that we be counted and seen as righteous before God. That we would have a right standing before God. So apart from Christ, trusting Him, loving Him, obeying Him, walking through life in submission to Him as Lord. Apart from Christ, we do not have a right standing before God. And in fact, we prove to be his enemies, neither fearing him or respecting man, neither loving God or loving our neighbor. It's a complete breaking of God's holy law. Friends, you may be hearing everything I'm saying about this judge, and it makes you cringe. You hate the idea of an unjust judge who does not uphold the law. But you see, if your very own lawlessness goes unpunished, God would likewise be an unjust judge. We've all broken the law of God, and the only just penalty is death. Everlasting condemnation. However, because of God's great love for his people, Jesus Christ was sent into the world, taking on flesh to fulfill the law, in perfection, to die a sinner's death in the place of those who are redeemed. Here's reality. Every sin that is ever committed from the time in the garden with Adam and Eve until Christ returns, every single sin will be justly punished. Either in an individual sinner in everlasting condemnation or It has already been punished in Jesus Christ on the cross. So we have to ask, how do you stand before the judge of the universe, the just judge? What claim can you make that he be just and yet allow you to stand everlastingly without penalty? It is only in Christ that we escape what we rightly deserve because Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. For those who rest in him. Turn to Christ. 
Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. And in doing so, he becomes our hope before the holy judge. And you see, the judge in our parable, he may very easily get under our skin and anyone could honestly say that he is a wicked and evil man. But if you are not in Christ, the Bible declares that you are just like him, neither fearing God nor respecting man. And the only difference between you and this judge is that he is willing to admit it. Will you admit you are at enmity with God? You see, this judge was of such corrupt and evil heart and mind that even in knowing himself to be what he was, he continued to still sit at the seat of judgment to judge his fellow man. Now, notice in our parable why this widow has any semblance of hope for justice. Look again at verse 5. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This is kind of funny to me. A literal rendering of this would be, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, lest she blacken my face with her incessant, constant batterings. It's the language one would use in a boxing match. She's battering me. She's bruising me. She's beating me to death. And so we get the idea here that the judge is saying, and I've had enough of it. So even still, you see, the judge's concern wasn't with justice. It was his own welfare, his own well-being. Now, I have to say I wasn't the perfect child being raised in my parents' home. Something I realized in time was that if I was persistent enough that eventually I could sometimes batter my parents enough in my persistence. I could beat them down with my requests, eventually getting what I wanted. That's certainly not godly character in any way, shape, or form in that instance. However, we recognize that persistence pays off, whether it's in a good way or not. So, The judge's concern here had nothing to do with justice. He was just tired of hearing her pleas. Okay, fine, whatever you want, just be quiet. I'm done. Perhaps as parents, we've all been there at some point. The only thing that moved this judge was a desire to be at ease, to take things comfortably. So even in the end, even for unrighteous reason... The judge granted the widow justice. She won a complete victory from this unjust, domineering judge and her adversary. So we can think about that parable and say, that's nice, Jesus, but what in the world does this have to do with persistence in prayer? Jesus explains, beginning in verse 6. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. 
Now, what we cannot conclude from this parable is that Jesus is telling us to be feverishly persistent in our prayers. In other words, that we frantically beg God to answer our prayers day and night. Now, you hear this kind of language often when people say, I'm praying for such and such, and I won't let go until God gives it to me. Is that the kind of persistence that Jesus is teaching? No. He is teaching persistence. However, is it to be approached in the fashion of desperate begging? In no way. Jesus clears that up in his discussion on the meaning of this parable. What he's doing here is contrasting God with the unjust judge. He uses an argument that moves from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if an unjust judge will ultimately do what's right in the end when he has the pressure applied to him, how much more will the holy judge who is just in all of the universe do what's right when it is requested of him? This judge was unloving and evil and ungracious and unmerciful and unjust, but God is loving and good and gracious and merciful and just. In fact, we understand theologically that God is the greatest and is infinitely all these things. God is most loving, most good, most gracious, most merciful. He is most just. And so Jesus reminds the disciples, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? In the parable, the woman was an insignificant nobody. But in life, as Christians, we are God's elect. We are his chosen ones, his children, created in his image and redeemed by the Son of God. And because of who God is and because of whom he has made us to be, There is no reason whatsoever for us to be frantic and worried in our prayers as we seek a response from God. Isn't that comforting? Perhaps you recall from 1 Kings when Elijah encountered the prophets of the false idol of Baal. They worshipped their idol in this way, we recall from 1 Kings. They, They took the bowl that was given them, And they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's tragic. It's pagan. It is idolatrous. And it is not what Jesus is calling us to. A frustrated, ongoing plea that leads to utter devastation and silence. The supposed Christian version of this parable is what I mentioned earlier. I will pray and pray and pray and pray. And I'm accumulating a meritorious critical mass that God eventually cannot ignore. 
But such an idea is idolatrous because it imagines that God is something like the unjust judge. So here's a few things for us to consider about our prayers as Christians. Given the truth of God's word concerning his character and his love for his children and his readiness to respond to our prayers. I've taken these questions from a book by Sam Storms. I find them to be very helpful to us. Four questions to ask ourselves in our prayers. One, do we repeat a request because we think that the quality of a prayer is dependent on the quantity of our words? Do we heap up many words before the Lord, thinking that as long as we utter a bunch of things, then he will answer us? Secondly, do we repeat a request because we think that God is ignorant and needs to be informed? Or, if not ignorant, at least he is unconcerned and therefore needs to be aroused? Is God like the prophet of Baal? Is is he like the God of, of Baal that the prophets were calling to? He needs to be woken up. He needs to be called back from some other task. Is God ignorant of our need? Third, do we repeat our prayers because we believe that God is unwilling to answer and we must prevail upon him, somehow transforming a hard-hearted God into a compassionate and loving one? In other words, am I going to convince God to change what's going on? That I was in some difficult circumstance and he was aware of it, but he didn't care. But if I just beat him down enough, he will, he will change all of this. He will change it because he was hard, but now he's compassionate. Do we repeat a, peti- a petition because we think that God will be swayed in his decision by our putting on a show of zeal and piety as if God cannot see through the thin veil of hypocrisy? Are we praying in ways that we think are just so holy that God will recognize our holiness and in doing so will be impressed. God will be impressed by our words. And so he will grant us our requests. What is prayer? Are we trying to convince God of something to do that he has already not determined to do? And so in saying all of this, you might be thinking, but wait, we, we just talked earlier about being persistent in prayer. And Jesus is clearly saying to his disciples that this is what they should be doing. So what are you saying right here at the end of the sermon to leave me even more confused about prayer than when I first came in? Clearly, the teaching that Jesus is giving us here in this parable is that we must continue in our prayers even when it seems that there is no answer. Because God, very much unlike the unjust judge, is loving, good, and gracious. But we persist in prayer not because we have not yet gotten God's attention. We persist in prayer because we know that he cares and we know that he will hear us. The Apostle Paul engaged in such prayer when three times he pleaded with the Lord for the removal of the thorn in his flesh. You read about it in 2 Corinthians 12. These were three sustained, passionate times of intercession for himself. Lord, I have this thorn in my flesh. I'm asking you to remove it from me. So likewise, we might pray. Lord, I have this physical ailment or 
or something that's causing me great pain and suffering and discomfort, would you be pleased to remove that from me and to heal my body? Or, Lord, I am struggling greatly with this area of sin in my life. Would you be willing to cause me to not be tempted in this any longer? I need my mind to be renewed in this area of life. You see, Paul did not think that his, his three times of repetition were due to a defect in his faith. Sorry, Lord, I'm, I'm back again. Um, please forgive my lack of faith. My prayers will be better this time. Remember this morning we, we heard in Sunday school about the Holy Spirit's work in our prayer. Our prayers are going to the Holy Spirit who is delivering them to the Father on our behalf, that they are made into treasures for the Father to hear. It's not that our prayers aren't good enough. The Lord is hearing the groanings of our heart from the Holy Spirit. So it's not a lack of faith. There was none of that for Paul. But in the end, what happened? Well, the thorn remained in his flesh. He prayed for it to be taken away, but the Lord kept it there. But what did God give to go along with the thorn in his flesh? More grace. You see, it's not wrong to ask God to do things which he has not promised he will do. Heal a sick body, save a lost child or neighbor, bring revival to a church or a community. It's not wrong to ask for those things. So we can go to God with all of our concerns and all of our cares. However, we can rest in his sovereign goodness that he is not unrighteous, he is not unloving, and he is not unjust. God knows what we need before we ask. And we know that he hears us. And we know that he will answer. We pray because God has told us to pray. And we pray because in praying, our hearts and our minds are all the more conformed to God's heart, to God's mind. Through the centuries, many believers have struggled with the seeming silence of God in their prayers. But here Jesus says that God answers all pleas for justice and does so quickly. Well, how can this be? It seems sometimes that it could go forever before he responds. Jesus ends his teaching on prayer in the context of his second coming, his consummation of the kingdom of God. Look again at verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When God acts, he does so quickly. However, When we consider God's timing, we must keep in mind Peter's wisdom regarding God's promise. Do not forget this one thing, beloved. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. To the elect, it may seem to be a long time until he answers our prayers. But afterwards, we will realize that it was all very short. See, Jesus' parable teaches the certainty of speedy action when it comes. And so we should not be discouraged in our persistent prayers throughout our lives when it may seem that God is being silent. We need to learn that in the silence Our loving God is answering us. Whether we see his working or not, he delights to answer his children's prayers. 
Sometimes his silence means that his answer is a loving no. Perhaps we, we ask from wrong motives or have wrong desires, even though the request itself may have been good. Maybe a better way is coming for us. Far better for Paul than the removal of the thorn from his flesh was to receive God's sufficient grace and to be made all the more aware of it, which was perfected in his weakness. This is why he could write, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Also, sometimes the silence means that God has a bigger answer in store than we could have ever dreamed of or asked for. And indeed, it may be an answer that we will never know until we get to heaven. Further, sometimes the silence of God is meant to instill greater dependence upon him. In the case of Paul, he was left with this thorn so that he would lean entirely upon God. We are so prone to independence that the granting of certain of our requests would lead us to even greater self-sufficiency and pride and independence. There can be no better way to cultivate a sense of dependence upon God than the need for persistent prayer. And as we live between the already and the not yet, longing for the return of the Son of Man, Jesus' closing question has the same force as it did with his disciples. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus' question implies that such faith will not be found on earth unless his disciples learn to do what he has said in his opening verse. Always pray and do not lose heart. Continual prayer is not only the evidence of faith, but the means of building faith until his return. The God to whom we pray is not like the unjust judge who could only be badgered into responding. Our God is loving and gracious and responds immediately to his children. And we're not like the nameless widow, for we are his chosen ones. And because of this, he delights to hear and quickly answer us until he comes. So when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? Yes, he will. If we have learned to live a life of prayer in between the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your instruction in your word that you have not only commanded us to do certain things, but you have shown us how to do them. You've given us example of what it looks like. You've given us parables to understand and to get a a greater grasp of what you want from us. And likewise, Lord, we're thankful that you don't simply require things of us because you want them done, but you've required them from us that it may benefit us. Lord, I can think of no greater benefit to the Christian life than a dependence upon you. And we recognize that an expression of that dependence is found in our prayer. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to be persistent in prayer in the right way. 
that we recognize that you answer us speedily. That we can ask you for good and right things and yet that you might even respond and tell us no. And yet that no is because you love us and you want greater for us and that you are working all things together for our good. And since we trust that you are an omniscient God, we trust that you know better than us. And so, Father, I I recognize that our hearts tend to move toward recognizing that you already know what we're going to pray before we pray it. So why should we at all? And yet, Lord, your word reminds us that when we pray, you work. You have designed this means of grace for our benefit to strengthen us, to encourage us, to conform our hearts all the more to your word, to make us more dependent upon you. And it is the means by which you act. And so I pray, Father, that you would make us to be a people all the more devoted to prayer. For those in here this morning who have told me that their desire for this next year is to to commit themselves all the more to prayer, I pray, Father, that you help them, you strengthen them in that, give them grace. And I pray that for all of us, that we would all be more committed in prayer. And Father, I pray that you help us to understand what that means in our day-to-day lives as we go to work, as we run our homes, as we do our chores, as we engage in our hobbies, in all of these things that we would do so with praise and prayer in our lives, in our words and in our works, that you would be glorified through us as your people for your great renown and for our hope and our joy in Jesus Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.